Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, I'm grateful. Uh, this is bigger than Chow. It's a bigger class. Uh, you know, so, um, this was kind of a quirky topic for me. Uh, I, when I teach the Bible, uh, like in an adult Sunday school class or something, it's, it, I like to choose a book and work through it. And so having a topic assigned kind of um, is a little different for me. You might not have much sympathy since we assign topics for you to write papers about. Um, but uh, uh, I had to get my mind around it a little bit. Um, but uh, um, I'm just going to plunge in, and uh, thanks, for, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. One of the ways we human beings make sense of ourselves and of our place in the world is through stories. We are constantly imagining ourselves into the roles we have chosen for ourselves, rehearsing bits of dialogue in our heads before we speak to the other characters we encounter and shaping our actions so that they fit the narrative outcomes that we hope will emerge. When we practice and enter into the roles in our preferred narratives, we are, rightly, guided by other stories we have watched or read, other characters we have observed and heard speaking. Other people help us write our stories. Those of us who are Christians are properly shaped by recognizing that our stories and actions and words are, and ought to be, in continuity with the larger story of the Bible including the unfolding of that story in the history of God's people. When Professor Green invited me to speak for this series, it was natural for me to turn to the scripture as I thought about my own answer to the question implied by the series title, Why Am I Still a Christian? By natural, of course, I mean what we call second nature, what my beliefs and training and experience all together prompt me to do or say without my hesitating over it too much. Asking the question, why am I still a Christian, implies reasons that I might not be, as well as some response to those reasons. In order to think about my own experience, it has been helpful to me to think about the experience of some, our, some of our ancestors in the faith, some of the characters whose episodes in the story have come before our episodes. There are plenty of biblical examples of those who faced some version of the question those for whom belief was not easy and straightforward, at least for some portion of their lives. We might consider Abraham's attempt to help God's plan along when he had a child with Hagar. Or we might consider Elijah's depression after God's judgment on the priests of Baal. I'd like to know more about the story of John Mark, whose temporary abandonment of missionary work caused tension between Paul and Barnabas. For today, I want to look at Peter's answer to a version of the question, why I am still a Christian. Peter's answer helps me name and understand some of my own mixed feelings in response to the prompt. And I hope that looking at his experience for a few minutes will be useful to you. But I should warn you that I don't expect to reach firm conclusions, and there are a couple of places where I'll follow a hunch instead of pinning down a fact. Peter's answer comes as a response to a question from Jesus near the end of John 6. Just to remind you, up to that point in John's gospel, we have been introduced to Jesus as the word of God who is God in chapter 1, witnessed his miracle at the wedding in Cana and his audacious cleansing of the temple in chapter 2, 
listened in on his conversations with the Pharisee Nicodemus and with the unnamed Samaritan woman in chapters 3 and 4, and heard him declare his equality with God and his authority over the Sabbath in chapter 5. Chapter 6 opens with Jesus' miraculous feeding of the 5,000. After that event, his disciples take a boat out onto the Sea of Galilee. Jesus walks out on the water to meet them. And when he joins them in the boat, they arrive at their destination, Capernaum. And now we've almost reached Jesus' question and Peter's answer. Lots of people who had been fed by Jesus' miracle have followed him to Capernaum. And Jesus delivers what is sometimes called the bread of life discourse. He explains, or maybe it's fair to say, that he simply declares without really explaining that he is the bread of life. He compares himself with the manna that God provided for the Jews in the wilderness and calls on his hearers to eat his flesh and drink his blood. Let me read now from John 6, 60 through 69. When many of his disciples, disciples here is referring to members of the larger group who are interested in Jesus at this point. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no avail. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. For the sake of time, I've skipped over a few phrases in the passage, and I won't try to deal with everything that's here. In particular, I won't try to explain what Jesus is up to in that discourse. For now, instead, I want to recognize in Jesus' question a version of our topic. Peter, will you still be a Christian now? Peter's answer has two parts, and each part can be understood in two ways. I'll consider these in order. In the first part of his response to Jesus, Peter asks a question. Lord, to whom shall we go? I want to hear in this question an affirmation of faith. I want to move directly to the implication, relatively clear, that Peter already recognizes in Jesus the way, the truth, and the life that Jesus will declare himself to be in chapter 14. One way to understand the first part of what Peter says is to hear it as a confession of faith. And indeed it is. And we should accept this way of hearing it with rejoicing. However, it would be possible to move too quickly past the form of what Peter says. 
he answers Jesus' question with another question. The form suggests a doubt and perhaps some fear or frustration. Peter's question, where else are we going to go, might be a firm declaration of faith, but it might also mean something like, yikes, man, we've burned our bridges. He might be asking internally the same question he says out loud in Matthew 19. We've left everything to follow you. What's in it for us? He might be thinking, I sure hope the boat is still in good shape where I left it because it looks like I'm going to need it. We shouldn't pass too quickly over this doubtful side of Peter's response to Jesus because if we do, we'll be perpetuating a reductive and misleading understanding of faith. We human beings want things to make sense. Sometimes we want this so much that we feel obliged to make faith reasonable. Let's be clear, faith is not unreasonable, it's not irrational. But at least some of the time, and by the very nature of what faith is, faith exceeds reason. When we try to fit the square peg of faith smoothly into the round hole of reason, one of the results is that we try to make faith look like certainty. And that means we present faith as excluding doubt. When someone expresses doubt to us, we jump too quickly to supplying neatly packaged solutions, explaining why the someone should get over the doubt. Or when we're the ones experiencing doubt, we keep it to ourselves because we don't want the people around us to think that we lack faith, that we're not spiritual. But doubt is in certain respects, a feature of what it means to have faith. In one of her letters, the American poet and doubter, Emily Dickinson, says, faith is doubt. Rigid dogmatists might construe the sentence as an expression of committed unbelief. But understood rightly, it's an expression of the obvious, in the sense that our experience of faith ordinarily involves an awareness that what we believe is not subject to our ability to prove or verify it. The philosopher Charles Taylor similarly talks about the doubt which is inseparable from faith. Or think about that definition of faith in Hebrews. Faith is the substance, the reality, of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. That last bit amounts to saying that it's the evidence of that which isn't evident in the conventional ways that make us comfortable. One reason I am still a Christian is that God has not deserted me when I have doubted. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Let me add a word about anger. I mentioned a moment ago that Peter's questioning answer to Jesus probably implies some frustration. Something like, where the heck else are we going to go? For the sake of time, and frankly because it's hard to speak my sorrows to all of you at once, I won't go into detail about the things that have made me angry with God. 
If you want to quiz me on it, we can talk about it over lunch or coffee or in my office sometime. But I've been angry. Sometimes anger has been the crazy answer to my doubts. I knew God was there because that's who I was angry with. Now, as James says, the anger of man doesn't produce the righteousness that God requires. But it doesn't throw God off his game either. Job and Jonah and Elijah and Moses and Peter got angry with God, or at least with the circumstances that God allowed them to face. In a few of these cases, stubborn anger made things worse for the man involved. So I'm not encouraging you to stay angry, but anger as a momentary expression of your frustrations and fears won't make God go away. It seems to me possible that Peter felt some annoyance with Jesus for saying hard things, and that his staying with Jesus sometimes has something to do with Jesus's continuing love even when Peter blurts out his annoyance. Another reason I'm still a Christian is that God hasn't abandoned me when I got angry. So in that first part of Peter's response to Jesus, there's faith, but there's also doubt. And we should notice both. Let me turn now to the second part of Peter's response. Peter says to Jesus, in effect, I'm sticking with you because you have the words of eternal life. Once again, the comment has two sides. And once again, I want to acknowledge both. What are the words of eternal life that, according to Peter, Jesus has? I suspect that if we conducted a survey on Main Street in Chattanooga, maybe there in front of Needlove's Bakery, that a lot of people would say that Peter is thinking about heaven. We might get similar results asking the question informally across campus. Well, what should we think? It turns out that John's gospel is a good source for answering the question. The phrase eternal life occurs 45 times in the English Standard Version of the Bible, which I'm using. Of those 45 occurrences, 17 are in John's Gospel. That's 38%. Interestingly, none of the references in John mentions heaven, though several of them, not surprisingly, mention enduring life, not dying, or not perishing as John 3.16 puts it. Now, I hope you're not starting to worry that I'm a heretic. I believe in and anticipate the new heavens and the new earth prophesied by Isaiah and again by John in the apocalypse. And I am still a Christian because I hope for a future consummation in which the things that have gone wrong in this broken, fallen world are made right. I look forward to the resurrection of life that Jesus does mention in John 5, the future resurrection that Martha and Mary long for during the first half of John 11. But what Jesus emphasizes in his teaching as John records it, is, uh, as John records it for us, is the association of eternal life with belief in the Son and obedience to the command of the Father to believe the Son. And part of what he teaches is that eternal life starts with belief in the Son. 
in other words, eternal life, resurrection life, is now. Even though there is an important sense in which it is also later. Peter may have in mind eternal life understood as a future and different life in the new heavens and the new earth. But it's also possible and important to recognize that eternal life is, in some sense, now. Consider what Jesus says in John 5:24. But note that as I read the verse, I am adding the word already at two points in order to bring out the sense. Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me already has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has already passed from death to life. In the Bread of Life discourse, just a few verses before the passage with which I began, Jesus says the same again. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. That is, already has it. Here's the point. Eternal life is resurrection life. And resurrection life has already started with faith in Christ. Although eternal life is about living forever, it's also about living a particular way from a particular attitude. Let me bring these ideas together by quoting from Ephesians 2, 4 through 10. I won't add the already this time, but notice the time indicated in the verbs that Paul is using. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Let's bring this back to Peter. What I'm suggesting is that when Peter uses the expression eternal life, when he says that Jesus has the words of eternal life, he probably does have in view enduring life after this life. But more fundamentally, I think, he has in view, maybe only indistinctly, a quality of life that has already been given to anyone who believes. The words of eternal life are words about how we can and should live now. Recall that Jesus, in the lead up to his question about whether the 12 will go away, has said, it is the spirit who gives life. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. Let me emphasize this. Right before Peter says, you have the words of eternal life, Jesus has said that his words are spirit and life without attaching the word eternal. But he's talking about the life that Peter also mentions. 
Eternal life is the life created in us by the Spirit and that has already begun in those who believe. By now you may be wondering whether I've lost track of our topic. I'm supposed to be talking about why I am still a Christian, but it's been a while since I mentioned that. No, I haven't forgotten, and we're almost back to the point of departure. If Jesus and Peter are primarily referring to a quality of life, life given by the Spirit, the resurrection life that has already begun in believers, what's the character of that life? It would take a while to say everything that could be said, but let me sum it up in a word. Love. And love is the only solution I can see for the mess we're in. I am still a Christian because Jesus tells me how to live according to the only way that leads to hope for the world, to live according to love, though I admit that I'm not that good at it. Later in John's Gospel, in chapter 13, Jesus will tell this same group, by this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Elsewhere, both Jesus and Paul sum up our appropriate treatment of people, not only disciples, but all of them, by saying, love your neighbor as yourself. Why am I still a Christian? because I don't see any hope for our culture or the world in general apart from love of neighbor. Everywhere I look, everywhere you look, people are rejecting and dismissing and neglecting and even frequently killing those who are different from them. As a society, we have developed an astonishing sensitivity with regard to individual rights. We are remarkably defensive concerning our entitlements. We keep track of all the ways others have offended or harmed us, and we want retribution. Most of the philosophical and religious systems of the world seem geared towards nurturing, self-love, even at the expense of others. But the life that Jesus gives the life that has the character of eternity, the life that Jesus demonstrated and modeled in his self-sacrificing humility, according to Philippians 2, is a life of love. And he calls us to love one another, not only inside the church, but also to love our neighbors outside. Why am I still a Christian? I'm a Christian because Jesus doesn't abandon me when I'm doubting or frustrated. I'm a Christian because Jesus is the only one whose model of and call to love makes sense in this chaotic and broken world. Where else would I go? He has the words of eternal life. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you for the teaching of your word. We ask that you would teach us to love you and love one another, and love those outside our circles in the way that you have demonstrated in your love for us in Christ. We pray these things in his name.